Welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com Series 1, Mythical Women Episode 5, The Search for Bridget The Story of Brig It was the first time Keening had been herned in the green land of Ireland. The poetry of mourning, the ritual of the eulogy. Brig keened for her lost son, her impetuous red-headed boy, Ruathorn. Ruathorn was dead, killed by the Spear of Govnu and the smithcraft of the Dodonan, killed as a spy in the forge. Why did it have to be her son who was chosen? Why did it have to be him, not hard the answer, she herself had played a part in his choosing? It had been her choosing to give allegiance to Bresh, a man of the Fomoira. Oh, he was beautiful, yes, and wise in the ways of the land, but he was cruel and miserly. It had seemed fitting when Nurda, leader of her people, the Dodonan had been maimed. It had seemed fitting then to choose a chieftain from among the Fomoira, those strange sea people who shared their land. It had seemed fitting then. Bresh, her husband, had put her people under a great burden of tax, keeping them in poverty. Why, he had even set her own father, the Dagder himself, to work building great ditches of earth. And battle had not been averted. Now Lou, the Ildonok, master of many crafts, led her people. Lou, who, like Ruathorn, was a son and a grandson of both the Fomoria and the Dodonan. Lou, with his Fomorian mother and Dodonan father. Ruathorn, with his Dodonan mother and his Fomorian father. So alike. Only Ruathorn was dead. All had gone well, at least for the Dodonan, and now the Fomoria were worried. They sent for Ruathorn, one of the few who was welcome in both camps. Why is it, they asked the boy, that the weapons of the enemy are never blunted? Why is it that the warriors we injure return to face us again each day? And Ruathorn, her son, his father's son, had answered them. Not hard to tell. The warriors are renewed, dipped in the waters of the well of Slania, Dienkek's well of health. Oh, not hard to tell. The weapons are resharpened each day in the skilful forge of Govnu the smith. And Ruathorn had been sent to the forge of Govnu to kill the smith, to stop his skill. And she had let him go. The red-haired youth had found his welcome in the fiery forge, as always. Make me a spear, he asked, the ruddy flames lighting his smile, and Govnu set his hand to the hammer and the iron to the anvil, and when the shape of the spear was sharp, Kredna Kert framed it with rivets and looked to set it to the shaft. And Crone took it, finished it with her blood-red mark, and she gave it to the red-haired youth. And this was the moment that Ruathorn made his choice. With a cry, he lifted the spear and let it fly. It struck the smith, struck him there in his own forge. It wounded him, but it did not fell him. Govnu plucked the spear from his flesh and cast it once more. It struck Ruathorn full in the breast, struck him, and he fell, red in his own blood. There, in the forge, the youth died. 
and Brig mourns for her son, who will not be dipped in the waters of the healing well, and the cadences of her keening are heard in both camps. So today we're examining the stories of Brig, or Bridget, the pre-Christian daughter of the Dagda, and also the much-loved saint of Kildare. Now, I chose to tell a story that comes from the mythological cycle. It's right at the centre of the story of Moitura, right in the middle of the battle. But it's the only story about Brig I could find, and it's certainly the only mention of her son. Now, traditionally, as far as I know, Bridget's associated with, now let me think, Smithcraft, healing, poetic inspiration. So do you think we found her in this story? Well, let's start by looking more closely at this story from the Kath Magaturid. Um, it certainly is Brig's only appearance in this saga, and indeed it's really her only appearance within the whole mythological cycle. Uh, she doesn't appear elsewhere in any stories or in even in the metrical Dinhyanicus. Well, not anywhere. No, there are some mentions of her from the Lever Gavola, the Book of Invasions, but that's not a consistent, you know, she's sometimes given as the mother of the sons of Turin, yeah. but that's not consistent well, either. She doesn't do anything. No, there. She, does, she doesn't even play a part. So, um, really, this is the, this episode from Maitura is the only, is her only real walk-on part, if you like. It's interesting, isn't it? This, this well-known person, this pre-Christian, um, some say goddess, mm. the, 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 uh, the, some say the daughter of the Dagda or even the mother of the Dagda, but mm. that's it. One story. Well, what about Ruadhorn? Again, this is his only appearance. Um, if we look at the story we've just heard, the other characters involved, Gaifnu and Krednacerd and Luchta, uh, even Bresh, they all are well established. They, they go right through the story of Maitura and into other uh, mythological stories. But as far as Ruadhorn's concerned, this is the only place he appears and he appears just in order to die. That's his only job. Yeah. So what do we see as the role of Brig in this story anyway? Well, in terms of uh, what you said before about Bridget, known as the, her associations with uh, Smithcraft, for example, she is associated in this story through her son, um, who's sent as a spy to see how the smiths of the Dodonan are working. It's really a kind of industrial espionage. He's a spy. Yeah. <laughs> so... What about the names? You know, how do they add up to these all the technology that's involved in the Ford? Yeah, it, Forge? it it is about the technology. Govnu, Krednacerd, and Luchta are often appear together. Um, Govnu himself, who's uh, we still have the word Govan or Gowan in modern Irish, meaning a smith. Yeah, it seems to come from the root of gub. Uh, which is essentially has the same root as gob in yeah. English. But the mouth. Uh, the mouth, but more specifically, really, the beak. Um, and so anything that's pointy, like a beak. Uh, so really, we're calling the Smith Mr. Pointy Beak. <laughs> I like that, Mr. Pointy Beak. Yeah. Mr. Governor. Uh, but again, it's it's uh, a recognised image for the, the point of a spear. And so that then makes sense of him as a weapons smith. Okay, so he's working with Krednacher and with Lukta. Yeah. Krednacher, now, he is all about the framework, the, the cred bit in the Krednacher. Cared means craft or art or skill or even craftsman. Um, and the Kredna bit is about frameworks, almost 
scaffolding. Um, so it's about the sort of how things are put together. Uh, so here he's, he's making rivets, but he's yes. making rivets out of bronze. Yeah, it, he's Worked usually... With the brazier. Yeah, he's associated with the, the softer metals, if you like. Okay, and Lukta is the carpenter. He is, yeah. Lukta is uh, known as the carpenter. Uh, he the, the name Lucht, although in modern Irish we're used to it as meaning like a crowd of people, we use Lucht Eichenthal to mean audience, so the, the group of people looking. But its roots are more in terms of materials, cargo stuff, really. So wood is your basic material. It is. The, 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 the bronze and the metal, the iron are yeah. kind of more special, but wood's yeah. your basic stuff. Exactly. And I mean, in fact, we we did mention Gaivnu, Luchta and Credna Caird before when we were talking about the Incaert, because the four of them together, there are four law texts known as the Bretha, the Incaert, Bretha, Gaivnun, etc., uh, which are texts around those crafts and so professions. So really important basic crafts. Absolutely. This is the stuff, along with the Incaert, yeah. holds, holds the world together. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Mind you, there's someone else that doesn't get mentioned. There's a woman called Crone. Yeah. She's a bit mysterious. Yeah, and again, she's just mentioned here. You know, we don't find her in other descriptions of work at the forge. And so we have to say, well, why is she here? Now, in the text itself, uh, she's described as grinding the weapons. So presumably sharpening them in some way. But her name is, it's often used as a colour word mm -hmm. for a blood red colour but it also has a specific association with enamel. Mm. That's interesting though, I mean she's connected with this deep red mm. but of course Ruathorn is red. He's red in terms He's... of Ruath is, is well known as the uh, colour of dried blood, yeah. rusty red um, and the crone is described as blood red. You know, so that there's definitely a reflection going on. It it almost feels like as though there were there's some new sort of new. If I was going to be imaginative about this, I'd say that he's come in and seen some new tempering process. Certainly um, finishing. Crone is is seen as she's finishing the weapon yeah. in some way, and some way that's almost their secret. Yeah, it's the secret that kills him. Mind yeah, you. absolutely. So do you think he that the fact that he tells his father's kin about the well of health? Does that allow for some sort of connection between Brig and Healing in the same way that her son's action connects her with the Forge? It's even more tenuous, I think, uh, to use this as saying that's a connection with Brig and Healing. For one thing, it's a negative connection. Um, yeah, Brig loses her son because she can't access the Well of Slania, the Well of Healing. Um, and whereas the warriors of the two a day are being healed, her son isn't. So I suppose after the, the fact that he's had a go at Govnu and mm. tried to kill him, they're not exactly going to put him in the well. He's no, now he's an enemy. He's now um, yeah, he's now pinned his colours to the Fomorian mask, hasn't mm. he? It's a real tragedy for her. Yeah, a it comes across as a real human tragedy. It's absolutely desperate. It is, and I mean, it's very much in the middle of a story about war and, you know, many thousands, countless numbers losing their lives to the war. Here we have what it really comes down to, which is a mother losing her child. Mm, which mm. is the genuine tragedy of any war. And that weird thing that, um, I, I don't know, it's something that struck me as I was, as I was telling the story, that the better the weapons get, the more technological development there is, the more mothers will lose their sons. Exactly, and that, uh, that's still the case with most yeah. technological developments these days happen through military interests. And the more improvements they are, the more people they kill. Mm, interesting. Well, the bit that 
involves Brig directly. And the one thing that she really does in this story is that she is supposed to be the first person ever to invent keening or to keen um, for her son. Mind you, she can't be the first mother to mourn for her son. So what's going on here? Yeah, and again, in the text, it says that she started by shrieking and ended with wailing. But keening is something more particular uh, in the Irish tradition. And it's, in fact, what it's referring to as a poetic form, the quina, um, which literally means wailing or crying. And it's where we get the English word keening is from quina. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very interesting, very highly developed poetic form. It comes right down through the years, um, all the way up to the 18th century, okay. uh, where we get the famous poem, the Queen Arthi Lyric, which is the lament for Art O'Leary. This was composed by Evelyn Dove O'Connell. Now, she was Daniel O'Connell's aunt right. and was born in around 1743. And again, Arthi Lyra, we know he died around uh, 1773, who was her second husband. Um, and she married him against the wishes of her family. It's a great romantic story and so on. But what it gives us is a historical, a documented historical uh, example of a queen, a a lament poem being composed. So was she a professional poet? Absolutely. And what's more, uh, there's evidence to show that Keening, these kinds of poems, they were written by professional woman poets. Right. Now, that's unusual in itself, isn't it? It is. It? They're a um, professional class of women poets. Absolutely, that were very highly valued, that this was kind of their only job, was to keen over the dead, but that, the, uh, which is something we find in, in many cultures, women are brought yeah. in to do this ululation and keening over yeah. the dead. So what was special about the poetry itself? Well, again, it was highly structured. You need to train for at least 12 years to be a professional poet, and these poems were produced extempore on the spot right so they were just um, improvised essentially yes with and skill obviously. with skill exactly we know how how many years it takes to be able to improvise well yeah, and yeah. the fact that a poem like the queen of arthur lyric was then recorded in writing when it would have been composed extempore on the yeah. spot orally um it, it demonstrates the quality of the poetry that was being produced. So Bridget, as it were, was, we're told that Brig was the first to create this style yeah. effect. Mind you, something struck me while you were talking. I was thinking that it was probably only the wealthy and the best, you know, the top families who could afford to employ or rather to, to have the services of this yeah. sort of woman poet. Do you ever thought about it? Maybe this is the origin of the Banshee story. Maybe Bridget Brig was the first ever Banshee. You might be closer to the mark. <laughs> it, it might sound ridiculous to sort of associate Bridget with a banshee as it now appears in folktales. But actually, if you think about it, banshee is supposed to be, it just means woman, woman of the she. So it's a noble woman from the other world who comes all the way from the other world to mourn over the death of someone in your family. To show your status. Yeah. Oh, God, there you are. This yeah. is, this is, uh, Brig was the first banshee. Yeah, it looks <laughs> oh, like that's it. funny. So does a name, do you think, give us any more clues about the pre-Christian Brig? Well, the name seems to mean a brig or mrig, meaning a hill, a high place. <clears throat> By extension, that can sometimes mean territory. Okay. Uh, it seems to also give rise, it shares a root with brug and brugge, which is the, the hospitaller or, and the What well, to do with hospitality, to do with welcoming guests, that yes. sort of hospitality. Yeah, exactly. Which yeah. again has to do with, you know, a wealthy territory. Okay, so could that, when you say a high place, mm. you mean it literally, just like a 
hill. Exactly, like we find in Bree Leth down the road. Oh yeah, um, down in Longford, one of yeah. my favourite hills, Zardar Hill. Yes, and so that Bree there, I think oh, is... the legends connected with that one. Oh yeah, so in that case, I think it is more a description of a hill rather right. than being named for a, Do you a person. Do you think that the a sense of high... Um, could it be connected with high status or is it just literal high place? It can. There are schools of thought to say that the Bridget is exalted one, uh, but I think that's quite a secondary meaning. So it's mostly that's a literal hill. I think it is. Yeah. There was a Celtic goddess called Brigantia. I mean, she's well documented. And uh, I mean, after all, in England, she gave her name to a really important group of Celts in the territory up in the north of England. I mean, we'll put maps and things on the on, on the blog site, but uh, it would they were a really important group of people. Um, the Brigantes turned up all over the place. Um, you know, that there is, there's one particular reference, there's a map maker called Ptolemy in, or Ptolemaeus in the second century, and he made a map of Ireland, and he actually wrote, put down a reference to the Brigantes in Leinster, but it's the only reference there is. It is, and it's from a classical source, and it's it's known that the classical scholars, the Greek and Roman classical scholars, didn't know an awful lot about Ireland. Also, the... Pretty good map, though. It, it's a really extraordinary... You mentioned the O'Neills, although... The the Ulster area and there's there's some interesting things on it but it's certainly the only reference there is to Brigantes in, in, Ireland. in Ireland and it's on the east coast where you know they're terribly metropolitan over there there's long been a lot of coming and going <laughs> even in the second century even if, oh absolutely yeah. yeah quite a lot of Roman influence at that time it, yeah and and the later time there's more Roman uh, Roman stuff in Ireland than you might expect yeah that's true and mind you uh, if you have this uh, idea that, that her name only means a hill mm. this doesn't explain the occasional um, river that's named after her. Now that really has to be named after Brigantia because you can't really call a river a hill. No, and, and but we only find that in Britain and the continent. I don't know of any yeah. river names we in Ireland. That. There might be one, but mm. it's very, very rare, if, if mm. at all. Mind you, I grew up in um, uh, in Brent, where the river there is named after her. Yes. Um, and we were always told that, that it was named after Brigantia. Mm. Um, and interesting enough, and this is really a side issue, where I grew up in Willesden, which means uh, the uh, well at the foot of the hill, there's a very, very old parish church, St Mary's, founded in uh, the 10th century. Um, and there, there is an extremely ancient shrine to the Black Virgin of Willesden. Don't laugh. <laughs> no. OK. And there used to be a very ancient black figure, which was, uh, and it became, uh, by the 11th, 12th century anyway, it had become a very, very popular pilgrimage place. As big as Walsingham? almost as big as Canterbury. It was one of the most popular pilgrimage sites in the country and it got bigger and bigger until people were complaining that uh, from the pulpit and from the, what do you call it, the high crosses and pools and people were preaching there about the desperate drunkenness in Wilston. And the loose women, of course. And the loose women. And uh, there's somebody who says, and will God not say to you on the day of judgment, thou hast not been to Wilston? <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, it makes me laugh. Yeah. But the interesting thing is, although Cromwell completely did, oh, the Reformation and mm. then Cromwell on top of it, he stabled his horses in, in the church. Mm. And uh, the shrine was forgotten. But in the 70s, it was, in fact, if there was, there's a story about a fine that was held in perpetuity. And in 1902, some 
someone questioned this fine, which by that time was a very small amount of money. A few money, pence. A few pence here and there. And uh, basically the story of the shrine was rediscovered. In 1972, a new black virgin of Wilsdon was put into place. A very beautiful statue. And by the way, it is a beautiful church. But whether this has anything to do with Brig or not... I'm really uncertain, but it's a good story anyway. <laughs> it is a good story. Uh, but I think that you're right that in that case you say that the, the River Brent uh, was always said to be named for Britannia as, mm. a, as a figure. Or and the Brigan- Brigantia. Yeah, sorry, Brigantia. Yeah. Uh, that as a figure, as a, a mythical female, yeah. I think you're right in that case. Yeah. You know, she's known about all over Europe. The Celts definitely had, the, the European Celts did definitely have this figure, Brigantia. I mean, from Brittany to Austria to Portugal, there are references to her, the inscriptions, the occasional statue. Mm. There's more than one British Romano um, image. Um, she's death seems to be regarded by the Romans as a Celtic Minerva, but mm. mind you, aren't they all? Yeah. And she's very much associated with victory. <laughs> yeah, after Boudicca, I'm not surprised. Exactly, yes. From Boudicca to Victoria. <laughs> yeah, Boudicca means victory anyway. It does, it? yes. And now, interestingly enough, the image one has of Brigantia, she actually survives and she be- eventually becomes the very recognisable Britannia, which is why I kind of interrupted you earlier yes, on sorry, because yes. we started with Brig- Brigantia. Brig- yes. Brigantia. But she does become Britannia. Britannia. Um, just like on the old penny, if yes. any of you know that. But I find that ironic. Yes. That we start off looking for the pre-Celtic Irish Brig, the Brig. greatest, well, most best known saint in Ireland. Yes. And we end up with the image of an old English penny. With yes. Britannia. Britannia. Yes. <laughs> There's no doubt she she did, it seems, give her name to the Brigantes, which then became Britain yeah. and Brittany. Um, Interesting, isn't it? It is. And again, there are theories to say if Brig does mean a high place, that some of these Celtic tribes, the Brigantes, were those who lived on hilltops. And mm-hmm. that's a characteristic of Celtic settlements across Europe. That's true. Are we getting any closer to the familiar in, uh, image of Bridget? We've got this goddess Brigantia in England, all over, uh, all over sorry, Europe. Um, but I don't really feel that we're actually finding the Irish Bridget. Well, that's not terribly surprising since Brigantia is so closely associated with Celtic tribes and there weren't any Celtic tribes in Ireland. Possibly small settlements of foreigners along the East Coast. But there so was the no... Celts were foreigners. The... Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I think this is interesting because yes. everybody thinks about Ireland as being the prime Celtic country. Yes. But in fact, well, it's actually not like that, is it? No. And for several centuries around the turn of the first millennium, you know, from a couple of hundred years before zero to a couple of hundred years after, there was a massive Celtic civilization or empire mm-hmm. across a lot of Europe. And that's a lot of what was given... Including them. Britain. Oh, absolutely. But it never came to Ireland. No, it didn't. And, and <laughs> uh, it's interesting, if we look at that sort of root of Brigantia as being hilltop dwellers, that's one of the prime archaeological indicators of Celtic settlements are these highly fortified, huge hilltop, uh, hill forts and not like our little raths in No, Ireland. we have loads of raths but they're not the same thing are they? Absolutely not and in fact they're, 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 we don't find those characteristically Celtic settlement patterns in Ireland. Okay. We also don't find these large uh, inhumation cemeteries you know groups or areas where there's a lot of buried 
bodies it's in just the not a feature of Irish archaeology. We don't is find it? that here either. And um, even the sort of artistic designs. Everyone which, thinks of Celtic art as being the prime indication. And it's, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but there's no doubt that Irish art uh, in the sort of first few centuries BC into AD, yeah. that there was influence from the beautiful sort of uh, plant-like curvilinear yeah. Latin designs yeah. that we find on things like the Breuter Collar, which is a beautiful piece, and on even on stonework like the Tarot Stone. Mm-hmm. Oh, but it's, lovely, yeah. it's it's not identical to the continental Latin style. So you don't feel the Latin style was, it wasn't an indigenous? No, it was, it was a cultural influence. So definitely no invasions then? No, there were no invasions. And what's more, Ireland in the so-called Iron Age wasn't a Celtic country. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, what about the Iron Age itself, Iron Age artefacts and so forth? There's not too many of them either, are there? There's very little. It's sometimes referred to as the Dark Age of Irish archaeology. It's strange, isn't it? It is. Now, when when I was in school, we were always taught, you know, that the Iron Age was between 500 BC, 500 AD. This was the time when the Celts were in Ireland. on a Tuesday. Of course, yes. (laughs) No, Uh, it wouldn't be Tuesday, sorry. (laughs) No, definitely not a Tuesday. Um, But that, you know, this was the Celtic period in Ireland and yet there are very very little artifacts there's very little evidence of iron working happening that's odd isn't it because I mean copper smelting started in Ireland in the west of Ireland southwest of Ireland almost earlier than anywhere else in the Britannic Isles yeah it was hugely early there yeah. that's where the copper came from and of course there's no luck of iron ore no indeed. I mean we live we're, we're recording this. If we walked to the top of the hill, we would be able to see the Iron Mountain, Sleven Aaron, yeah. um, a place where they worked on iron up till the 18th century. And in fact, the Hapney Bridge in Dublin yes. was built, was created, not built, was forged yes. from iron taken from Sleven Aaron. So mm. we're not short in the resources. No. And yet there's so few artifacts. Yes, yeah. There seems to be little iron working. They're, they occasionally used sort of lumps of iron, sort of mixed iron ores. I'm not a metallurgist or a mineralogist, unfortunately, so I don't know all the details. We do have a few bits and pieces, but it's certainly it's not... not... It's not that common, is it? No. There is a certain amount of it, but in terms of what you'd expect for an Iron Age, mm. um, what I find interesting is the few Iron Age sites there are. Absolutely, and there are a very few. We have very little in the record to show us how people actually lived at that time and what we have are weird yes i mean this isn't we can't go into it in great detail now but uh, oh when we were talking uh, uh, in an earlier podcast about maka yes and uh, nap and fort on maka and in fact the archaeology which will be on the website is just plain weird I mean, the site was built over a hundred years. It started off as um, this this really odd roundhouse divided into several sections, each with earth brought from all mm. over Ireland. Well, they built it, built a, a structure over the top of this, and then within a hundred years, they set fire to it and buried it. Yes, and no one knows why no. to this day. Interesting enough, there is reference in certain classical sources to a temple of Apollo. Yes, which is thought to thought maybe to be. be Navan Fort in, in that short window between the time it was completed and the time it was burned and buried. Around the same time, they were building this wonderful road down at Corlay yes. in County Longford. Yes. It's a couple of kilometres of this superb uh, road, which was built in exactly, what was it, 148 Yeah, BC. again, we can date Den- these precisely because of the trees that were I used. hope I've got that site, yep. that 
148, I think it is. It's about that, yeah. yeah. I will check, but that's what comes into my memory. I know mm. the place well. But there again, so strange, this beautiful road. And it was deliberately built to only last 10 years, even though it, it involved the careful felling of hundreds of oak trees, superbly made. And um, and there are other sites like this, yes. but very few. I'm trying to think what... Uh... Uh, the, the Black Pig's Dyke... Um, which is a strange kind of linear earthwork, uh, which actually includes timbers of the same date as Navan Fort, which I think is about 94 BC. Yeah, they're so, all about 100 years. Mm, within, within that about little time. Years or so. Yeah, some, some of the work at Tara and at Nogolina as well sort of mm. come from this and date. And each time you'll find archaeologists say, archaeologists will say, well, it's all very interesting, but actually it's obscure. We don't know why it was built. We mm. don't know why they did things this yeah. way. We have no information. And they're definitely not sort of militarily defensive settlements. There's no evidence of people mm. living there full time. They're not easily sort of defended against attack. Mm. Uh, they seem to be more theatrical or as gathering places. That seems to be I their main function. I feel they've got a sort of nostalgic quality through them, almost as though they're looking back to uh, the great sites around them, which mm. are... Anyway, this is a difference. It's not yes. a subject we can get into now. No. We're supposed to be talking about Brig. <laughs> well, all of which is to say that uh, while Brigantia is definitely important to the Celtic peoples, uh, it's not surprising that we don't find her in Ireland since it's not we're not Celtic. Celtic. <laughs> what about the language? Well, yes, it is. The Irish language is part of the group known as Celtic languages. And as I was saying, at one time across Europe, it would have been, particularly in Western Europe, it would have been the dominant culture. Um, so, yes, Irish is a Celtic language that developed from, you know, a sort of Indo-European language mm -hmm. that would have covered Europe and much of sort of uh, West Asia. Uh, so it has the same root. But at the same time, Irish is significantly different yeah, it's, it's from the, the other Celtic languages. It's called kind of the isolation of Ireland, isn't yeah. it? So, for example, it's it's different enough, if you like, from Welsh, from uh, the Gaulish, which yeah. was then Breton. Um, they seem to have split off really quite early. So even if they did share language... Um, Again, you can't really date no, languages no. very easily. You can't easily. because it, it's ongoing all the time. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stories in common. There's quite a lot of t crossovers there, particularly with the Welsh. Absolutely, yeah. And there's no doubt about it that the Irish and the Welsh were swapping good stories for a very long time. And as we've seen with uh, particularly a text like the Battle of Moidura, yeah. the Cath Magathurid, there are a lot of names in common, particularly with the great Welsh uh, saga of the Mabinogion. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the people who have been... First branch, yeah. yeah, the people who've been examining, if you like, the, the textual history of these things, that it does seem that the composer of our ninth century story of Maitura was well aware of a lot of the British, Brythonic, Welsh mm -hmm, culture, mm -hmm. and so may well have the names may well have come across, although the stories do differ in their details. Oh, there are a lot of different, but you can mm. you can recognise in essence enough to compare and contrast the stories. Exactly, it yeah. goes both ways though, because it is thought that one of the composers of the Mabinogion, who I think is a woman poet, this is not my area yeah, of expertise, no, than... but that there is connections with again the east coast of Ireland. So it, that kind of influence goes both ways yeah, between the Irish and Welsh. Good stories best shared. Isn't Absolutely. It? Yeah. So let's get back to Brid Bridget. This is what mm. we're supposed to be talking about. Look, 
We've gone through the story from my Torah, and I'm, but I'm still not really sure. This idea that's so persistent that if you, you know, anyone will tell you that she's a goddess of uh, poetry, healing, and smithcraft. So if it's not really there in the story of Brig from the, the, the story of my Torah, where does it come from? Well, the main source for this is a text called uh, Cormac's Glossary. Oh, right. Okay, San- here we go. Sanus Cormac, which is, uh, again, it's a 9th century text, so, you know, in terms of the written text that we have, it's nice and early, but it was written by Cormac Aquilinon, and he was the bishop king, is usually how he's described, of Cashel mm-hmm. uh, in the sort of ninth, tenth century. Another interesting place, absolutely. But bear in mind that at the time that he was writing this glossary, uh, it had, there was already a well-established uh, Christian church oh, in yeah, Ireland. Course, yeah, uh, we're, we're actually talking about post synod of Whitby. Absolutely. So it's an established church of which he's a bishop. So this he's. Is- Established and also established Roman Church by this time. Yes, exactly. Also, a very well established cult of Saint Bridget. Absolutely. In Ireland, powerful um, place. Yes, most definitely. The whole sort of Kildare, Leinster area was very wealthy, and uh, the church or the monastery or whatever you want to call it of Saint Bridget was very politically powerful. Yeah. So Cormac was writing this glossary. Um, and he didn't necessarily actually know what the sources were. So he wasn't checking his sources. Not really. He was kind of recording the, if you like, common knowledge a lot of the right. time, speculating about the origins of words okay. and all the rest of it. So Carl, really, Cormac's glossary gives us a, um, you know, it gives us an image of how people felt about the stories at that period. Exactly. But it doesn't really tell you about the oral tradition. No. And the, so, uh, uh, as uh, the, uh, the, the Moitura story seems to take you back. Yes. It really does mm. feel as though the monks there are just recording the story as it was told. Mm. Well, also that in in the gloss- but it wasn't a modern work. Cormac's writing a new work. Exactly, and what Cormac is writing as well is kind of it's it's an attempt at a dictionary or an encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to sort of pin down definitions from uh, myth, from the canon law, from the language, from all mm-hmm. over the place. So it's a new literary work, yeah. not the recording of an older work. No, and he's trying to tie yeah. things so up together. So that's why you regard it as a dodgy source. I do, yeah. It, it gives us interesting stuff, definitely, but don't take it as gospel. <laughs> She's gone away again. Let's try and reel her in. Look, we're supposed to be talking about Bridget. Let's try St. Bridget this time. So what about the much-loved St. Bridget? I mean, do we even think she existed? And what do we know about her? Well, in particularly with a lot of early saints, it makes little difference whether there was a historical personage or not, certainly for our purposes. Um, like I say, the cult is well-established. There are two hagiographies, mm-hmm. uh, which is the wonderful term for the that word. life story of a saint. Um, and Bridget's are particularly un, uh, unbiographical. You, it, it's not the life story of a human being, put okay. it that way. It has a lot of kind of mystical elements to it. Uh, the two main sources um, are the Vita Brigidi, or um, my Latin's terrible, I'm afraid, which is uh, dated a uh, Latin text or composition dated around 650. Mm. Now, Bridget was supposed to have lived in the early part of the 6th century, so 100 years before that at least. Not bad, though. No, not bad. In other words, her cult had got big enough within 100 mm. years that something has to have begun it. Exactly, yes. And then there's the Irish language, Bethubrigta, uh, which comes to us 
uh, around the middle of the 9th century. So we're talking between 800 mm. and 850 from mm. linguistic datings. So these are the origins. Most modern historians now don't think there was a, histor- a historical person. But something has to start, when you get a story that strong, yeah. something has to start it going. So mm. if one wouldn't, wouldn't like to completely dis. dis- Yeah, No, absolutely not. It's just too good a story. Something has to happen to create a story. There has to be a spark in the first place. Yes. The the life story of St. Bridget, I think it does have elements, despite all the miracles and magical things, there is at the centre of it a woman who is a very genuine and committed Christian who's well respected for her acts of charity, for looking after the poor, um, for dispensing food. Likely a noblewoman. Uh, well, more than likely, someone because has to be in that position. In they order. were, anyway. Yeah. They yeah. mostly were. Exactly. In fact, nearly all the saints we have usually start as... Yeah. And I think it's pretty clear that there... Forget Patrick. Yeah, that there, there was uh, <laughs> some kind of female religious order that built up around uh, one or maybe more than one very charismatic but very definitely Christian woman. Yeah. There is a spark somewhere. I just It's just that we haven't a clue. Exactly. And there's no way to know either. Well, if we can't authenticate... Bridget, St. Bridget, historically, let's look at what we know about her in folkloric terms. I mean, for instance, oh, one of the most important things we know about Bridget in terms of folklore are her association with holy wells, and they're everywhere. All the Tubberbridge, yes. all over the country. Yeah, there are many holy wells which are associated with St. Bridget, and holy wells are live and kicking all over Ireland of every type. Uh, Much but- love too. Absolutely, I'm really cared for. Uh, in Kildare, which is the home of St. Bridget in terms of the order that she's supposed to have established, there's St. Bridget's Wayside Well and St. Bridget's Garden Well. And I know you, you're you very, very fond of those places. They're beautiful. And the Wayside Well is particularly accessible because it's right outside the gates of uh, the Japanese gardens, the National Stud, mm-hmm. uh, which is a real... It's a tourist site. But you can there access her Wayside Well because it's beside the road, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's been put up with uh, stone paving. It's supposed to, you know, give comfort to every traveller who passes that way. Uh, and then there's her garden well, which is a little bit hidden away. But again, it's it's in a green space and uh, has been beautifully kind of restored and kept. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the honouring of the wells. Yep. I was thinking of the English story or from the story from the Lady of the Fountain about the uh, the voices of the wells. Let the voices of the wells be heard in the land. And if the voices of the wells were heard then the land would be healthy. Yeah. And it just, I think when it comes to Bridget Wells, it's, it's so, Bridgetine Wells are just so true. Yeah. But there's, there's, there's I was thinking about um, one of her wells at her birthplace, which is... Um, Fahad. Fahad. Now, I haven't been there for many years, but when I first went there, I found it a very interesting place. Uh, there's a path, you know, the, the, the pilgrimage path, the pattern of the well, and it takes you past a whole series of particular stations, but each of them is associated with a different part of the body. Mm. So you have um, the the I think there's the the hand stone, the the, the neck stone, the, mm. the the back stone. I'm I'm doing this from memory, mm. so I won't swear to them. I'd have to go and look them up, and mm. I just didn't do that. But what's halfway down? There's a hoof stone. Now that did make me stop. You yeah. know, go okay. There we are. This is for getting your back better. This is for getting your uh, neck better. This is for getting your hands better. This is for getting your hoofs better. <laughs> right, that's a little strange. 
and then, then this path takes you down to through her well. The other thing that I, it was a long time ago when I first saw this, and I wasn't used to the idea. It was the first time I saw not a sort of um, a, a holy thorn covered in votive offerings, mm. and, and we'll talk about those rags, in a bit. Little yeah. rags tied, and the idea with these little rags is that you make your wish or your prayer or your devotion at the well and then uh, you tie a rag to the thorn and as the rag um, disintegrates and uh, decomposes so will your problems yes but what I saw here was a barbed wire fence actually covered with tied on plastic bags of every color yeah and I was thinking well in terms of decomposition these are not biodegradable <laughs> I think these problems may hang around for a while. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how that works. Well, it's something that happens quite a lot in, <laughs> it does, in, doesn't it? in contemporary society, where, whereby they know that there's something that has to be done where you tie something soft onto something spiky. <laughs> has got lost a bit. It has totally got lost, but that's not unusual either. No, I've seen this now and I'm used to it and I'm rather, rather fond of it in a rather odd sort of way, like I wish actually there weren't plastic bags yeah. tied to barbed wire fences, it looks kind of odd, but at least you know the spot, what, it, what spirit it's, it takes place in and yeah. I don't laugh at it anymore, but the first time I was a bit taken aback. Uh, I remember being, years ago, being up at the Well of Dune up in Donegal and uh, I happened to be <laughs> stuck in a camper van there at the time needing with the oil being changed and mm -hmm. so it was there for a couple of days now this was at the pattern time and coach load after coach load of people came past as well and they'd all get out and they were obviously all on sort of pilgrimages yeah. and they'd walk around the well and several times they went up and asked people now can you tell me the origin of this well or why are you doing it and each time I got well it's what you do or I don't know. Mm. And I asked, do you know who, who this well is dedicated to? And well, there was some priest set it up, but I couldn't find anyone to tell me anything about it. Yeah. But nevertheless, it didn't didn't interfere with the devotion and the meaning mm. of, of the pilgrimage. Yeah. Um, it was just a strange experience. Yeah. The wells mean things to people. Oh, they do. And and in terms of the you know plastic bag votive offerings, another place where you find a lot of votive offerings is in this area, St. Lasser's Well. Oh, it's a wonderful which well. Which is gorgeous, up by Kiju. And there's a little shelf, sort of stone yeah. shelf beside the well. And I've seen, you know, baby shoes. I've yeah. seen Ventolin inhalers there. Yeah. Pencils, yeah. pens, little medals, yeah. um, airline tickets, yeah. all sorts of things. Yeah. And, the, you know, it really is a place where you can actually, your wishes, your hopes, your yeah. fears, you know, let your problems go. Mm. Um, it, it's very, very positive. It has a very strong... Yeah. It has a power. It does. A very strong meaning. Now, it's interesting you should choose. We could have talked about hundreds of wells, yeah. but maybe Lass's well is as good an example of a Bridget well as any. Because, in a way, it, it wasn't originally a Bridget team well, was it? No, and indeed, it's still called Lasser's well. But there is a really interesting story that connects St Lasser to St Bridget. Now, she was the granddaughter, supposed to be the granddaughter of St Ronan. I think... Or daughter, I'm daughter, not, not no, sure. Daughter of St. Ronan. Yeah. yeah. Now, he he has a little church near Kiju. Um, Kilronan. Kilronan, yes. The Kilronan church was just a tiny little church. Mm. Um, it's very early. There's mm. just the remains of it. It's got a uh, carving around the doorway that looks a bit like baked bean cans <laughs> on their sides. Um, but it's still a very beautiful little mm. churchyard. Yeah. Um, and St. Last was supposed to be his daughter. Yeah. And... Again, she's supposed to have set up an order of women 
um, much like Bridget. And it's there's, quite early, I think it was yeah. seventh, sixth, seventh century, something like that. I'm never sure of the dates. I, have no, to I say. haven't actually looked yeah. into the dates particularly. Yeah. It's just the place is so beautiful. Yeah. And of course, the well itself, um, there's uh, a path that goes down to it. There's uh, rituals associated with a little hollow stone where you're supposed to wash your feet, and there's it's also all worn away. Yeah, and there's also then the stone table with the circular ballon on top of it. Interesting which, story that goes yeah. with that. Um, they say that this, uh, if you crawl through the legs of this stone table or this little sort of altar, it's supposed to cure your backache. Yeah, you have to do it in figure of eight. Yeah, it's likely to give you backache. Actually. Exactly. <laughs> and more recently, they've put down a nice little neat green covering so that you don't get your knees muddy while you're doing it. <laughs> it used to be really muddy. Yeah. There's a story that's supposed to be that uh, St. Lassa was this a story of the soldier? Yeah. Yeah, I am um, trumpetist. I have my own version of this story, which is all about St. Lassa and the Garden Claw. Yes. And I get mixed up with the story. Yes. But so but it's the story of the soldier. And uh, he's supposed to have come along as she used earth from her garden. Yes, in order to cure, to cure his backache. Yeah, yeah. But again, the, the story that kind of links her m most strongly with St. Bridget is it's from the folklore. You know, it's, it's not written down in any great book in fancy handwriting. But the story is that St. Bridget came to visit St. Lasser um, at her uh, little oratory or where her order was there. And that uh, Lasser slaughtered her last ewe in order to provide food for St. Bridget. Um, and that after St. Bridget had sat down to the meal, who should come calling but St. Patrick? Mm -hmm. And of course now St. Lasser has no food left to offer her guest and, and is at risk of causing great offence by not being Offering able to hospitality. give hospitality. And so Bridget uh, divides her portion and gives Patrick most of her food to save face for St. Lasser. Yeah, which is nice. Yeah. yeah. And in, in gratitude for this, St. Lasser gave St. Bridget her church, as in her order and her following, and all of her ewes, her sheep. And so uh, I agree with Mary Condren on this one. Mary Condren wrote The Serpent and the Goddess. Mm -hmm. uh, I agree with her reading that this is telling us about the passing on of whatever cult was associated with St. Lasser, that that Became... His name means Saint Flame, by yes, the way. Yes, didn't say that. Is Lasser a flame. flame. Yeah, should have said that in the first place, really. Well, shouldn't we? yeah, it's it's just... yeah, but yeah. you know, she she is the flame associated with the, ho the, the healing flame in well. the well. Yeah. Yes, and so what what we're looking at with a story like that is the passing on that those things that were previously associated with Saint Lasser were given to Saint Bridget, kind mm. of in safekeeping, and that's kind of typical of what happened all over the country. Yeah, that Bridget became such a popular saint. Yes, and her her honour her was so high that she was no that she's so pop was just popular. Yeah, that in the end she appropriated a lot of other cults. Yes, and a lot of customs and uh, traditions and yeah. so on. That uh, so that it can be hard then to disentangle yeah. you know what was associated with Bridget or St Bridget in the first yeah. place and the fact that once again we've got Bridget and Patrick yeah who if they lived were at least a century apart oh yeah but there they are again together as they are in so many folk folk tales though I love the idea she slaughtered her last you yeah 
and she was going to give the whole sheep to, I know, to Bridget. To Bridget. Yeah, yeah. So sharing half a sheep each yeah. seems quite <laughs> generous. We yeah. mustn't be too literal, but it just is. Yeah. I'm not, I want a whole sheep yes. to eat. Yes. Patrick's going, no, I have to eat a whole sheep. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this, this is more like Gogus and folk stories. I love this bit. Yeah. And then after all, though, she has to, then when she gives away, yeah. or she gives all the ewes as well, the ewes yes. she hasn't got. Yeah, well, it's, again, it's sort of part I'm of. Joking, the, you know what? What her church is about, I think. Yeah, but it's interesting. Again, this this use the lactation of the yeah. use, which is associated with this time of year, yeah. and often with with Bridget. Yeah, that there it all is in the story. Yeah, there's one little bit concerning this well. Um, when I used to first go there, it was particularly interesting because behind the near the altar, mm. just in front behind the well, there was a great ash tree. Yeah. And the ash tree had coins um, hammered into the tree all the way up. Yeah. Uh, it was full of coins, some of them going back a long way, and sometimes where the tree had remodelled itself around them. Mm. Now, um, unfortunately, the tree was damaged in a storm and they chopped the whole thing down. Yeah. Uh, and our pattern day is not in, in bulk. No. It's actually the 18th of September. 8th, 8th, 8th of September. September. Yeah. The 8th of September. Yeah. But nevertheless, it's a very good example of an appropriated well. It is. And indeed, there is another St. Lasser's well down in West Cork near the Kerry border. And that one does have its pattern at the beginning of February around in Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So the pattern in Kiju may have changed at some point. Who's to say? It's yeah. no way of telling. But yeah. um, certainly it's still a very popular and very cared for well today. Oh, yeah. Um, now, there are lots of other folkloric associations uh, that we've looked at. Hospitality. Now, the Lassa yeah. story gives a good example of Bridget's hospitality. Yes. And there's loads of folk stories about Bridget. Oh, yes. And indeed, you know, for example, there's a poem uh, that's attributed to Bridget where she talks about how when she goes to heaven, she wants to provide a great ale feast for God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and all the saints who went before her, that that's her desire, is to be able to give a great feast and that's provide ale. Like <laughs> does a bit and certainly it's it's a joyous picture you know yeah. and part of the stories from the life of Bridget are to do with you know that she gave a portion of meat to a stray dog and she was being given out to for giving away the meat but when they went and checked it was all there and isn't that story well known story about her giving away her father's sword yes yeah to a poor to a poor uh, he wasn't person very who pleased no no not swords were very very valuable no but again it's one where they went back to look and there was the sword there was a sword yeah. it's always replenished yeah now I was like that one because mm. the sword, the flame, the blade mm. of the spring yeah. was a good. It was a, a, a pleasing image. Yeah. Nice symbolism. Yep. The blade of the sword in the yep. well of the spring. Yeah. Um, kind of like the sword in the stone turned upside down. Yeah. I just like the imagery. Yeah. Um, now there's some odd stories about fertility. Mm. Now again, I can't tell where it comes from. I can't remember where it comes from. It's a folkloric story mm. of one of her, the nuns of her order, uh, discovering she was pregnant, mm. and Bridget saying, "I'll save face for you," yeah. and she actually caused the fetus to be reabsorbed into the woman. Yeah. That story is not so often told, but it's, no. again, it's a very good story. Oh, and it's it's a very very interesting one, uh, particularly she, for. Catholic Ireland. Yeah, well, that's why it's not popular. Exactly, told. yeah. But it's there. Yes. And again, you know, she's supposed to have ensured that domestic animals were fruitful in every possible mm. way. She's definitely concerned with fertility. Yes. Uh, particularly the lactation of the ewes mm -hmm. and, and so forth. Um, then there's cures. Oh yeah, again, um, in the uh, the Beth Brigta, the the lives, there's stories about her, you know, curing a 
blind man and a leper. I think there was two lepers and one was grateful and the other one wasn't. That sounds as though it's been borrowed somewhere. Absolutely. You know, there's, it's very much paralleling a lot of, you know, life of Christ almost, you know. Yeah. Well, is she, once again, she's such a lovely character mm. and that people become so fond of her yeah. that they want other stories to be attached to her. Yeah. It's a perfectly normal process is, yeah. that happens to popular figures. Yeah. They appropriate stories. Mm. As I put in any other story, that stories gather around them like moths in moonlight. Yeah. Yeah, but again, with the cures, so many of the wells are associated with cures, and particularly those stones in Fahert as part of the pattern, you know, the headstone head and the eye stone. And, the eye know, stone, that yeah, was one of them. Yeah. I'm trying to remember what they and are, the, they're just the waste, different parts of the waist The waist stone, stone is definitely there, yeah. and it's a stone which is shaped like a waist. Yeah, yeah. A rather nice hourglass, <laughs> I wish I had one like that. Do you think if I go there, I'll get one? No. <laughs> I'm not going to answer that. Then, of course, one of the most famous symbols for Bridget is a cloak. Yeah, and part of the sort of well-known folk stories. Do you know what? I couldn't even tell you whether it's in the text because it's the kind of thing that you learn in primary school. Oh, absolutely. In, in this country, where the story is that Bridget wanted uh, land for her order. And so she went to the local king in Kildare. And he didn't want to give her land because she was a woman. And she said, well, if I put my cloak on the ground, can I have whatever land that covers? And so the king said, ah, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. So she puts her cloak on the ground and then it expands and grows until it covers the area that we now know as the Kura. Mm. I mean, this is a story which is, you'll find in the imagery of every national school classroom. Yes, Bridget's yeah. cloak, of yeah. the, the cloak of flowers. It's almost mm. like spring spreading across the land. Yeah, and indeed, you know, it may well... There is a link there with the idea of territory, that she was able to put a part of her clothing, her cloak, on the ground, and that it then filled to be her territory. A hint of a connection? Hint of a With tint. the pre-Christian yeah. brig? <laughs> who knows? Exactly. Um, there's also another story about how she hung her cloak on a sunbeam. Yes. I like that. Yes. And then it was actually, I was reading that one Skyhook. recently. <laughs> and uh, it's uh, St. Brendan is, is there as well. And he sees her do this and is really annoyed. So he tries to do it with his cloak. <laughs> and it, it keeps falling off. down. <laughs> No. And of course, one of my favourite stories, and especially because this is a leap year, yeah. there is a story again connecting her with, with St. Patrick, how she goes to the 29th of February, she goes to Patrick and asks Patrick to marry her, <laughs> which of course he can't do. No. But then he has to give her a silk dress. Yes, yeah. Now, I don't know where that story comes no. from, but it's in the folklore. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we ought to talk about the Order of St. Bridget herself in Kildare yeah. and the Eternal Flame. It's quite an old, It's said to be quite an old order, isn't it? Well, certainly, again, by the 9th century, by the time that Cormac O'Quillanon was writing his glossary, there was clearly a well-established uh, order of St. Bridget based at Kildare. Uh, so it's quite an old order. Again, there are plenty of stories surrounding it, such as the one we just said about Bridget's cloak, that she was looking for mm -hmm. the lands for her order. It was said to be an order of women. Um, it, there's a story about Bridget being accidentally made a bishop. <laughs> oh, I forgot that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but that certainly there was an early Christian order based around mm. Kildare, um, which had the figure of St. Bridget at its centre. Do you know if the, um, the, 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 the eternal flame was also part of that early order? Again, from folklore stories, I think... 
I think Geraldus Cambrensis refers to it in his Yeah, his I think Bar. you're right. But again, he's about as reliable as Caesar oh, in he, terms of a source. That's true, though he does give us um, werewolf stories in Ireland. Yeah. That's another, that's just that another. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so there, there are, there are references yeah. to uh, the flame being kept by the sisters yeah. at Kildare. And Is the, he... That interests me because it's a, it's a potent and ancient symbol. Yeah. From the Vestal Virgins mm. to the Nine Maidens yeah. of the Arthurian. Yeah. This sense of the, the women and the flame. Yeah. Um, and certainly if you look at um, the Romans, mm. who you know, definitely yeah. had the, 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 the Vesta, yeah. the, the cult of Vesta, which was incredibly important. Absolutely. And we know a lot about the Vestal mm. Virgins. It could... It, it could be a similar order to that. Yeah, it, it does look like it all right. I mean, the, the sort of folklore, if you like, around it was that um, Bridget had 19 nuns, uh, plus herself making 20 in the order, and that they would each spend a night to keep the fire, and that after St. Bridget had died, they didn't replace her. They kept their number at 19 mm. and would, again, watch the fire each night for 19 nights, and then the last one to watch would say, uh, now... Bridget, it's yours to keep, and they would leave it for that night to be mm -hmm. watched by the invisible Saint Bridget, and it was always still going the next day. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there was definitely this early Christian order. Um, I think it was destroyed around the time of the sacking of all the monasteries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, there was a, I think there was an attempt to revive it maybe in the nineteenth century, but there certainly is now a Bridgetine order mm -hmm. based at Kildare, mm -hmm. the Bridgetine Sisters. And uh, they're a very interesting group of women altogether. Mm -hmm. They have a house and a little housing estate in, in Kildare Town uh, mm -hmm. where everyone is welcome to come in. They give the hospitality and they have the flame in the shape of a candle mm -hmm. uh, in, in one of their rooms. And they do a lot of the celebration of, of uh, Law of Regia, the 1st of February. Mm -hmm. They also say they don't bother trying to make any distinction between Bridget as a goddess and Bridget as a saint. Mm. And they're, they're very open and welcoming and... A complete mixture of... Um... Christians and neo-pagans exactly and yeah. Else. yeah yeah they're 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 very good people yeah no no, no that's that's that I like that I mean yeah. she was also quite um not now so much but she was also quite popular in other places like uh, she had a another order in Glastonbury mind you yeah. Glastonbury grabs everyone or grabbed yeah. everyone I mean they had uh, St David St Dunstan St Patrick. Yeah. I mean, they were all buried at Glastonbury. Anybody. Yeah. If you're anybody for anybody, dear, you have to be buried at Glastonbury. <laughs> but there was definitely a, a Bridget's monastery, oh, yeah. and there's an image of her there. Her mm. image, her, her images always have her milking a cow with a bell. Yeah. And the cow and the bell seem to be important yeah. there. Um, and there are other places in Europe. But mm. um, it's lovely that it's still going at Kildare. Mm. And of course, there is. Um, Invoke Bridget, Bridget Lola Bridge, Bridget's Day. Yes. Maybe connected, maybe have associations with um, uh, Candlemas in the church calendar. Yeah. And even has hints of maybe people still celebrated in the form of Valentine's Day. Yeah. It's not so far off. Um, mm. But let's talk about Lola Bridge. Yeah. Lola Bridge, again, the official, if you like, feast day of the saint is the 1st of February. And this coincides exactly with the pre-Christian festival of Inmulk, mm -hmm. uh, which was one of the four main festivals that would have been celebrated in Ireland before the coming of the mm -hmm. Christian calendar. Um, 
you had Samhain at mm. the end of October, beginning of November, which is kind of the start of the year. It's certainly the start of winter. Yeah. Imbolc is the start of spring. Mm-hmm. Then there's Bealtaine at the 1st mm-hmm. of May, which is the start of summer, and Lunasa at August, the start mm. of the harvest. Often known as the four fire festivals. Four fire festivals, yeah. And there's no doubt that they were widely celebrated across Ireland. Oh, hugely. So Bridget has been given this place at the right at the beginning of spring mm-hmm. for Imbolc. And... This is one of the things that's led a lot of people to say that the customs of uh, St. Bridget's Day mm. reflect the customs associated with the, a pre-Christian brick. Yeah, it's difficult to tell. Certainly the customs seem to belong to a pre-Christian time, or there are elements that could belong to pre-Christian yeah. times. And certainly now they are all associated with St. Bridget. Yeah. Um, but they're all very interesting customs anyway. They are. Probably the best known is, of course, the Bridget's Cross we started talking yeah. about. Yeah, the making of the St. Bridget's Cross, which you'll find in every household. But they're traditionally again, made on uh, Law of Regia or on the night before. There's a bit of made at every school, every primary yeah. school makes Bridget's Crosses. Yeah. Um, here they're made out of reeds. Yes. But there is some evidence to suggest that, if you like, the original material would have been straw. Mm-hmm. Um, from the previous uh, autumn's harvest. So it's almost like now we're beginning again. Yeah. So we make something, or make a mend. We yeah. take the last of it and we reuse it make into something, something that symbolises the beginning of the year. Yeah. Oh, we don't have this stuff around here. No. We have lots and lots of reeds. Exactly. And reeds are a fantastic uh, material anyway. I mean, what one of the... Uh, possible associations again in terms of candleness yeah. the following day is that of course you can make candles oh i've done this rush. yeah yeah you know you you take the rush you you take off the outer green coating and mm. you dip the white pith in um, animal fat mm. i've done this in school with children yeah. and uh then you 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 burn them you put yeah. them in a little saucer or a holder uh, they don't last long no and but the rush lights mm. as they were known you know the rush lights were for in, at certain times the only form of light you yeah. might have at night especially yeah. if you were poor and I'm told reliably by older people that back in the emergency, that mm. is to say the Second World War, people actually started using them again in, yeah. in country areas. Yeah. So they are within living memory yeah. just. Yeah. Um, but the crosses are the, the most ubiquitous, the ones you'll yeah. see everywhere. But there are more designs than you might realise. We're mostly familiar with the four... Uh, armed one which is slightly skewed unfortunately the proper term for it is a swastika yeah it's that's the technical term for yeah. that shape yeah. the fire wheel yes yeah but there are actually um and, and again it's it, it's there's a, a three there are there three-sided are three, there's a three-armed mm. uh cross in inverted commas um which is often found up uh, donegal seems to be the native place for mm. that they're fun to make yeah there's also versions which are uh like diamond shaped mm-hmm. and uh you know th- there's as many ulster there's some quite complex ones oh yeah a lot of them seem to the complex ones as far as i know come from ulster mm. or it may be that the the memory of them's been better preserved in yeah. ulster yeah. it's difficult to tell yeah. but they're definitely made up and down the country for a long time and still today. Mm. And they almost have this feeling of movement of a in them, and movement. a wheel in yeah. movement. This is the, the purpose of them. I was going to say, with use, of course, here, um, it, it's not many generations since houses were roofed with uh, reeds with as reeds, well. Exactly. It was very much a ubiquitous, ubiquitous part of everybody's life. Yeah. The yeah. reed was essential. Yeah, and very easily available in, oh, in weapons. Oh, yes, very easily <laughs> available. Yeah. Well, of course, then you've got the British cloak, the cloth. Yeah, or the Brath Regia, um, which in terms of the way that Lola Regia is celebrated, um, very often what you got was um, some scrap of cloth, although 
again, traditionally it's supposed to be some fine fabric, and that it would be left outside uh, overnight on St mm. Bridget's Eve. Again, you had to leave it out, I think, before sunset and take it back in again before sunrise. But That's not so bad at no. the beginning of February. No, exactly. You, you get a bit of a lie-in <laughs> that time of year. It's not about getting up at four o'clock in the morning, uh, certainly. But um, the idea was that the dew um, was had a power of curing. And a that, healing property. A healing property. And that St Bridget was imagined to be walking the land essentially over that night and that if if she had passed then you know she has given blessing to whatever's out there her virtue is now in the cloth yeah and can be passed on to a sick person exactly or used for healing yeah so so and it, it was generally used for headaches but also to help in childbirth yeah, yeah, now that's interesting. Yeah. Then, of course, sometimes you've got the Bridget's Cross, but there also is some evidence of a Bridget doll. Yes, this is the Bree joke, and this is in many ways the most interesting because it has the most, uh, I suppose, ritual elements associated with it. Uh, again, it was a dolly or a shape that was made out of rushes or straw. Mm-hmm. Um, it was often uh, wrapped uh, either in children's clothing or just in a cloth to look like a, a child or a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in some areas that wrapping became the Bridget's cloak, but not everywhere. But what was important was that she was carried from house to house. It's a bride doll. Yeah. That's how I've heard of Yeah, yeah. A bit or biddy doll or biddy doll. Yeah, or Brie joke. Um, and that she, she was taken from house to house. And at each house, um, there was a kind of ceremonial entrance of breach into the house mm-hmm. in the shape of this doll that who, the people carrying would knock on the door and uh, the people inside would say who's there essentially and they'd say it's Bridget <laughs> and they say Bridget who <laughs> <laughs> but you know that it was actually very Sorry, I resist that. <laughs> yeah it, it, but it was it was very ritualized yeah you know now, oddly enough um well not oddly enough mm. that that particular custom mm. has kind of faded away largely, yes, hasn't it? Whereas it has. the the Bridget's Cross has definitely not. Yeah. And even the cloak. Yeah. Even the brat. Yes. Yeah. People. Some people continue that, but yeah. the doll I haven't heard about. No, because again, I think it has more to do with you know a, a very involved kind of personal ritual, and it's the kind of thing people don't really have the time or yeah, inclination and communities for. don't have time to go from house to house. Exactly. They've got to get to work. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't work in the same yeah. way. And besides that, you're not going to put your bride doll in a car and take it around to the local... You know, it just no. doesn't work no. in the same way. And then, of course, so you mentioned the Chris. Yeah, well, the Chris Vrija, which is... It, I doesn't seem to have been as widely practiced as things like the the Brijog procession uh, or even the making of the crosses but there were some places where um, in the Brijog procession you had the girls carrying the Brijog doll but the boys would have this chris or belt um, which was a very long rope made out of twisted grass or straw or or reeds Hmm. and it was long enough that it could be put into a circle that you could then kind of step into the middle of it and pull the circle either up or down over your head so that you've kind of passed through it. There's a lot of symbolism there. Oh, yeah. And very often there are stories where um, children, and sick children mm. especially, were passed through it yeah. three times. Again, I've not heard of that one mm. in recent years at all. No, no. And and it wasn't. It doesn't seem to have been widely spread over mm. the country, certainly looking at the, the Folklore yeah. Commission. And records. we actually have some local 
Bridget Customs, which yeah. are very unusual. Absolutely. Not from, our, from here in a place called Balanaglira. Balanaglira. And uh, I have to thank Sean O'Dunn, who wrote a book called The Rights of Bridget, Goddess and Saint. Um, and he has done a huge amount of research bringing together the, the evidence from the Irish Folklore Commission. Um, and he lists some really essentially unique customs, I suppose, uh, from the area of Leitrim. She's up near um, <coughs> Loch Up near Schliebener and actually yeah. beyond Schliebener and up towards Quilka. Yeah. Um, and that one of the things that was done with the rushes on uh, Bridget's Eve was that they would actually use them to make a kind of picture. They would get a board, a wooden board, and uh, they would use a half-boiled potato as glue. <laughs> And using the reeds, they would make these shapes. Now, there was a crescent moon, mm-hmm. um, which was as the waning crescent, uh, so like a letter C. And there were stars, all of which were seven-pointed stars. Uh, below this, there was a ladder with three rungs. And above, there was a circular shape, which some people said was the sun, some people said was the full moon. But it then makes a good case for saying that it's a spinning wheel. Mm-hmm. So you've got a spinning wheel, you've got two two um, seven-pointed stars, you've got yep. a three-round ladder yeah. and a crescent moon. Yeah. All interesting symbols. Yeah. But I gather there was more which connects us with Valentine's, really. Yeah, that, that uh, then makes the case that there are other examples whereby at this time of year, when you're kind of choosing your mate, which is what we do now on Valentine's Day, um, that a girl would give a boy... Um, that she hoped to get together with a little model of a spinning wheel that he would put under his pillow and then he would dream of her that night and the boy would give a girl a little model of a ladder to put under her pillow so that she would dream of him Mm. I mean good male and female symbols but also the ones that are connected with the pictures yeah I haven't heard of that custom anywhere else ever no Uh, but then Ballad of Glira is quite an interesting place it's up near the playbank where there were faction fights and all Mm. sorts of things it's it's um, yeah, yeah. No, that that is a unique custom. Yeah. So, I mean, is there any connection to the breed Christian brick? Have we found any little nuggets? I'm really not sure. No, and uh, it's usually assumed that these traditions around Law of Regia, which is also in bulk, which we know is a pre-Christian festival, mm-hmm. that therefore the traditions that are associated with Saint Bridget were used to belong to a goddess called Brig or Bridget. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily follow. Uh, if we look at the example of Christmas, another important time of the year, uh, in terms of as it is now with Christmas, we have Santa Claus, mm-hmm. otherwise known as Saint Nicholas, Nicholas yeah. and uh, he was said to have given uh, gifts of money so that some poor girls... Bishop or something, wasn't he? I think so, and I think mm. he was Turkish, but don't hold me to that. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, he was able to give a gift to these girls so that they could marry well, so yeah, that they had their dowry. dowry yeah. yeah, and so that is, if you like, within the Christian calendar. That's his backstory. That's his backstory. However, uh, it's pretty widely acknowledged now that the date of Christmas has an awful lot to do with it being so close to the winter solstice and the depths of winter. Mm. And uh, that in fact there are pre-Christian figures such as Odin or Woden Mm. who were said to be giving gifts in the depths of winter. Yeah, it turns up it's pretty universal. It is, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Almost universal. Almost universal, yeah. Um, and it makes sense in terms of the darkest time of the year is mm-hmm. the time when you need that that lift. Um, so it's, like I say, widely accepted that Santa Claus and Christmas 
does represent an older festival and an older figure. Mm. But we don't assume that that older figure was also called Nicholas. No, that's, that's absolutely true. It's just become his name yeah. and that is associated with a apocryphal story about a bishop in Turkey yeah. called Nicholas. Yeah. So uh, while the rituals around the time of year uh, remain the same. They're pretty ancient. They yeah. certainly are very... That's yeah. something we could talk about another time because they're yeah. incredibly ancient. Absolutely. The, the, it's a very important time Go of year. Right back to um, Neolithic times. Yeah, yeah. Shinskelele. Um, oh, Shin... More scale, Ella. Uh, but like I say, we don't therefore assume that the pre-Christian figure is also called Santa Claus no, or say, Nick. We and so why would we say that the pre-Christian version of whoever was doing the spring things was also called Bridget? Yeah, yeah. It's just the way it is now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a good story, and that's yeah. the way the story's told now. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting. But the, there's all that we can really say about the, certainly in Irish terms, all we can say about the mythological Brig and the St. Bridget is that they have the same name. Mm-hmm. Which is not surprising, considering that we speak a Celtic language and that uh, Brig was important to other Celts, so the name would have been quite popular. Mm. It's and not if surprising. it means territory, yeah. we're always back to the people, yeah. the land. Yeah. So Brig is the name of yeah, our bit of land. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think in those terms, maybe we ought to go back and uh, look at the Moistura story again. There might be a bit more to say, given it's the only pre-Christian brig. Yeah. But her son is particularly interesting, and uh, you know we've gone digging in terms of story archaeology, and in, in fact we've uh, gone looking for the story of brig and and the finds a few mm, in, the, in the few. There's very little to find, but some of what we found wasn't what we were expecting. The little bits that we found have actually been concerning Ruthon. Yes. And yes. her son. So it might be worth just having another look at what we've actually found. Yeah, Ruthon is said in the story specifically to be the son and grandson of the two of the Danann. And that's important, isn't it, it? It is important, and it's partly important because it is stated, uh, but within the structure of early Irish society, that was very important. For example, um, what little social mobility there was between classes could only happen over those three generations. Ah, yeah. So if you made your land better or accumulated wealth or status some other way you weren't really in the club but your grandchildren would be so you were making status space for your grandchildren by what you were doing and when they would be making status space for their grandchildren yeah but you had to prove it for for three generations yes exactly um now often when uh this episode is discussed in any academic work it's usually in terms of the role of the maternal or paternal kinship relations um, now it is stated in the text that after Ruadhan is killed it has something that it feels like a little gloss yeah. um, put in by the author the composer as he was putting it down that said and for this reason the weaver's beam has been known as the spear of the maternal kin ever since right because of course Ruadhan was being killed by a spear from his from his mother's mother's people. kin, yeah. Whereas he had followed, as it were, he had showed loyalty to his father's, father's kin yeah. by agreeing to be a spy. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and this is something that often gets uh, discussed discussed often between Lug and Bresh, Lou and, and right, Bresh. Right, right. 
Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Lou, who, of course, is leading Verdadon at the time and, of course, is a major character yeah. in Celtic mythology. Um, he turns up all over Europe, yeah. England, Ireland. He's everywhere. Yeah. And he's, if you like, the child of light, the mm. saviour of people. He's a pretty major figure. Mm. And um, he was the son. Uh, he's described as the son and grandson again. Yeah. Uh, but he's the son and grandson of the Fomoira yeah. because his mother was Fomoira. Yeah. And we've talked about Etlin in a another podcast yeah his grandfather was the great Balor the yes. monster the great giant of the Fomora with yeah. his evil eye yeah and in fact the final battle in uh, Moitura is the battle between Lou, Lou and his Balor. and Balor his grandfather yeah yeah and again you know that's given as an, an example that you know basically you shouldn't give any loyalty to your mother's people but I think there's something else going on here. They seem to be reflections of each other, yeah. don't they? It's as if they're connected. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly um, the fact that Ruadon, it's specified in the story that he's the son and grandson of the two a day. The only other person whose grandparentage is really mentioned is Lou. Yeah, that although often um, um, Lou and Bresh are seen as reflections yeah. of each other, I think there's a far closer reflection. Mm. If you're going to look at the symmetry of it, yeah. the symmetry is Lou and this rather minor character of Ruthorn and I think he's much more interesting and what also um, gives me a clue to this is the Welsh story yeah. and the Welsh Lou now uh, I'm not going to go into the whole story here but in the Welsh story of, of the birth of Clue there are um, two babies born to Aaron Rod mm. when she steps over the branch held by Gwydion mm. um you know, in front of Marth, she drops two children. Yeah. Now, the first child is a beautiful child who's named Dylan, mm. but he takes to the sea and is lost in the sea. He becomes a dolphin. Yeah. And, and funny enough, his name is still as popular as yeah. ever. And Dylan of the Sea is a is a wonderful character, though he appears in no stories. Yeah. He's just given to the sea. Yeah. And, of course, the second, the dark, hidden child, hidden mm. in a chest, becomes a child, Lou. Yeah. Or Clue, in this place, in this case. Yeah. Apologies to my Welsh pronunciation. It's not that good. Mm. Um, but... Uh, you know, and he goes on to have to win his name and his uh, his rank, and his uh, he has to gain arms, yeah. and and uh, even his bride all have to be hard won because mm. his mother refuses to give them to him. Yes. But the point is that, that that there seems to be no birth story. You know, w with Lou, we have to look for folklore. Yeah, that we have to look outside of this sort of central text of the Cath Magathurid in order to find the story of of Lou's birth mm. and there's equally well there's even less if you like about mm. his upbringing that's right we know about clue he's denied his name he yeah. gets he tricks the name from his mother or mm. gwydion tricks the name from his mother gwydion tricks his mother into giving him arms yeah. and then makes a bride for him himself yes the woman made of flowers. flowers but with clue we know nothing about his childhood at all mm. it's completely lost yeah there, there's one kind of part of the tradition again it's it's almost folkloric that uh, lou was fostered out to to Mananon, Mananon McLear in the Irish. Uh, a stranger, story. a magician, an a outsider, wizard, an outsider, yeah. a figure with some similarities to Gwydion, I yeah. have to say. But the important thing about this is that this Ruathorn, mm. who seems to be a reflection of Lou, goes in stealth to his mother's people for arms. Yeah and dies. Yes. So in the same way that the other child is lost in the sea, here we have almost like a lost reflection of Lou. Um, being lost in a forge in yeah, fire. Yeah. And 
you know, in gain, the act of gaining arms kills him. Yeah. I, I don't know what reflection there is, but there is something there. Yeah. You know, what connection there is, rather. Yeah. But there does seem to be something interesting going on, something I'd certainly like to look into a bit more. Yeah. That this this reflection of the two, the two twins, the light and the dark yeah. twin, which again appears in the Welsh. Yes. And it, it it's a central theme in the story of Maitura, and which is part of why we're doing a, the whole next series. Yeah, we will. Yeah, about Maitura. But there seems to be this idea of reflection, of reflecting characters. It's absolutely central yeah. to Maitura, but we can't go into that now. Yeah. I don't think. But I think that that sort of points us in the direction of. It's what another, the story of Ruadon's about. It's another piece of emphasis. Yeah. But there's one thing that I suppose I quite like the idea of. Mm. Uh, going back to Brig again. Yes. You know, we're trying. We really are trying <laughs> to go back to Brig. Um, if we're going to see Lou and Ruathorn as reflections of each other, I suppose we could see Brig as, well, um, not Ruathorn's mother, but his foster mother, an equally important position if if not more so. more so in some ways the foster mother was more of the mother than the mother in met so so many stories well in old irish um in in contrast to just about every other certainly every other indo-european language the fond forms mummy and daddy uh, are applied to the foster parents mm -hmm. so the the foster father is known as adja Mm. So like daddy um, and that comes to mean teacher or professor in modern Irish Idza. and the mumma or bwimma for mummy um, comes to mean nurse and indeed mm. the mm. other modern Irish word we have for nurse is banaltra which means woman who fosters yeah it's really yeah. It's, so it's not minimising her role but there's an odd thought to finish with mm. um, Bridget's known in so many stories as the foster mother of Christ the child of light. Yes. So here we have a pre-Christian brig as the foster mother of a child of light and saviour to his people. <laughs> so do you think we found a connection between the pre-Christian brig and the saint of Kildare? All I can say is anyone for tenuous? <laughs> you know, it's been fun exploring the yeah. story, but there's something I just wanted to say to finish. You know, we, we were looking not just at folklore, but at story archaeology. Yeah. And when you, if you go out on an archaeological dig, you may have a story, you may follow folklore, you may be told, yes, here's a Roman villa, but when you, when you go, or whatever, mm. and when you go digging, you may or may not find it. Yeah. And it's interesting as we've gone digging in the, into the story of uh, Bridge or Brig or Bridget, the deeper you go, actually the artefacts are few mm. and there's not much there. Mm. Uh, we found a lot of other little bits of, uh, of artefacts which may mm. have told us a little bit more about the surrounding stories. Yeah. And yet it doesn't change for one moment the power or the mm. impact that Bridget has. Yes. Had and, and has. And she just seems to grow in terms of how people relate to her and feel about her. That while she may not be very evident at those layers, those deep layers, that here where we are now, there's a lot of Bridget mm. and a lot of people that relate to her and she brings a lot of people so together. no story on archaeology, but what we've got is a living, growing figure. I think Bridget is probably still becoming. Yes. Well, thanks for listening and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you again before long. Thank you for listening to Ogilvy Nanagas, conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on the storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.